Welcome to the School of Humanity podcast. You are made in the image and likeness of God. Not only does God long for you, but you are like Him. What does this mean for you? How does it affect your view of God? How does it affect your view of yourself? How does that affect everything? This, this is, is the School, School of Humanity. Humanity. Welcome back to the School of Humanity podcast. This is Jason and Rachel Bullman. And we are excited to get back diving into the book of Revelation. Not shuns. Not Thank you. Revelations, yes, but Revelation. Um, last week we uh, have had a guest on our show, and he's here with us again, Tom Ponchak, uh, longtime friends of ours, and, um, and knows a thing or two about the book of Revelation. So um, I guess just to recap, we talked a little bit last time about how whenever we read any part of Scripture, it always has to be in context because a text out of context is a pretext, as they say. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard that before. That's That's pretty good. Isn't that good? (laughs) That's pretty good. Write that Um, down. (laughs) And uh, so we always have to read any segment of sacred Scripture within the whole and according to sacred tradition um, as interpreted by the magisterium if we want to stay on track. Now, there's a lot of scripture that is left open for interpretation, um, and the the church hasn't said definitively one way or the other on certain things. And uh, we'll, we'll, I think, talk about an instance in the book of Revelation uh, with Tom where that's true. Um, but nevertheless, you know, Scripture always begins, uh, we always uh, begin reading it on our knees, and so hopefully we put on the mind of Christ and, and, uh, and prayerfully uh, take in Scripture because it's living. Um, That's right. Yeah. So the, if, you, if you missed last week's podcast, please go back um, and take the time to listen because there's some just profound and... and really awesome things that I think are so valuable, things that I didn't even know as a uh, sola scriptura previous believer um, <laughs> that that would be very helpful for you. But um, as you know, we have like usually end our podcast around the 30-minute mark. So uh, we don't want to let that time get away without really go ahead and diving in there. So Tom, godfather to our third-born and first daughter, please take us away. No problem. Um, so, uh, with the Book of Revelation, um, you know, picking up with some of the introductory thoughts on it, uh, it's just a couple of things to keep in mind. You know, a lot of times people, um, you'll hear people refer to Book of Revelation as apocalyptic literature. Um, apocalyptic literature was a uh, it was popular uh, from around 200 BC to uh, AD 100, uh, and uh, some people say that the, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic because that type of literature did, uh, some of the notes of that was, uh, there was often unexplained or unintelligible symbols, um, a lot of symbolic language in it, and hidden meanings and things like that. Uh, but the other side of that is uh, apocalyptic literature it tended to be generally pessimistic, very uh, uh, focusing on the evil of the world, that if things are getting worse, um, not really concerned with uh, moral teaching, uh, but 
just emphasizing eschatology. And that's one of the reasons I, I don't really look at Revelation as being apocalyptic. I think it's, it's prophetic literature, and it fits the mold of Old Testament prophetic literature that you find in Ezekiel, and Daniel, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and um, and I'm not the only one that thinks that. John himself, in the book of Revelation, on at least six occasions, call, says that Revelation is a prophecy. Um, it starts off uh, with, uh, blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written, and it ends uh, in chapter 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone asks them, God will add to him the plagues. Uh, if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life in the holy city. So John himself referred to Revelation as a prophetic book, and I think if you look at those books in the Old Testament, it really fits that mold more so than apocalyptic literature, just because there's symbolism in it and, and numerology um, doesn't necessarily, I don't think, make it apocalyptic, um, it, because it is filled with hope, it is concerned with uh, right living and things like that. So I think that's some of the things we need to keep in mind. The book itself was, um, it was addressed to seven churches, uh, and they're listed in, uh, in the book, of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. There's seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And in, in those early chapters of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, each of those churches is addressed. And it's, it's worth to go through and read those, because really for each, just about each church, there's something good, there's something they need to repent of, um, there's a challenge to them, and then there's a, a promise as well. And I think if we read those those letters, even though they're addressed to those churches, we can kind of take that you know that moral sense of scripture that we talked about last time. We read these and like, you know, how does this affect me? So probably most famously, the book of, the, the letter to Laodicea, um, the lukewarm ones the calls lukewarm. them out for being lukewarm. Yeah. You know that they're not. They're not hot or cold for the Lord. They're, they're just lukewarm, and so I'll spit you out of my mouth, uh, Jesus says. And, and the challenge that he gives to them is, you know, to buy from him uh, gold that's tested in fire and white garments and, and salve for their eyes so that they can see. Uh, and so, you know, as I read that, I'm like, well, you know, in what ways do I have to be on guard against being lukewarm? You know, do I... Do I compromise and things like that? Yeah. So I think, I think as we go through those letters, that's kind of one of the ways we can read that. And then after that, after chapter three, once you start getting into chapter four, um, that's when all the funky stuff starts, as I say. You know, uh, I think I because think the, um, most most Protestant um, uh, sermons were taken just out of those first three chapters. You don't really go. You, you didn't really go past chapter three. Cause yeah, and, and I think I think even for yeah. a lot of Catholics, they're, they're cool reading up to chapter 3. Right, right. Because it all makes sense. And then chapter 4 and beyond, it's, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like a Holy Spirit acid trip or something. Um, <laughs> where you get, it's vision start, and you got beasts, and 
and you know, seven wild. heads here and this and that. And, and so, um, but really, you know, you, as you, as you start to get into it, um, you know, John is taken up into heaven is what it says. And he's, and the rest of revelation is this vision that he has of heaven. And so really revelation is kind of giving us like a behind the scenes look at what's going on in the world. And that's what John wants to do. He wants to tell the early Christians, these Christians in these churches that are going and undergoing persecution, that here's a behind-the-scenes look, that the God's in control, he knows what's going on, and here's what he's doing in heaven while all this is going on around you. Um, and so, you know, the first vision is this vision kind of a throne room of God, right? There's a sea of glass, there's 24 elders, and there's there's torches and spirits and um, there's these four living creatures, right? And we, and we see these four living creatures as Catholics. We recognize them and kind of identify them with the Gospels. Um, that there's a man, uh, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of a bull, and the face of an eagle. Um, and they're winged creatures, right? And they're, they're flying around the, the, before the front of God. And, and these same creatures are in, in the book of Ezekiel as well. And we see them as Catholics. We see these as each of these four represent different books of the Gospels. And so if you've seen that, sometimes you'll see it on the books of the Gospels, sometimes you'll see it in our church, we have a mosaic uh, up on the altar with the four those four images. And um, what's interesting is to kind of get the meaning behind that. So Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is represented by the man, and the, they get their meaning from how the Gospels start. So the Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy, starts with... Um, you know, so-and-so, we got so-and-so, we got so-and-so. And so it, it, that emphasis on the, the human origins uh, of Jesus, uh, his, his human lineage, uh, lin, uh, lineage, lineage, there you go. Uh, that's where, I, that's why Matthew's represented by the face of a man. Mark Mark's gospel is represented by this creature with the face of a lion, because Mark's gospel starts with John the Baptist in the wilderness, crying out in the wilderness, oh, like a lion so would good. cry out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Luke's gospel is represented by the face of a bull, because his gospel starts with Zechariah in the temple offering a sacrifice. And then John's gospel is represented by the eagle, the face of an eagle, because of the, the his gospel starts with that that beautiful prologue of, right. the, you know, the Word became flesh. Very lofty. Um, it's, it's lofty. It's a, this, this, this kind of a floating above kind of view. So that's where those, that's why we attach those meanings to those Gospels and those symbols. That's so good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Uh, and then, you know, you go in the, from there, and then in Revelation, one thing you'll notice if you pay attention is there's there's these cycles. So there are seven seals that need to be opened on a scroll, and then there are seven trumpets that are blown, and then a little bit later there are seven bowls or seven chalices that are poured out. And the, the temptation is to think that the Revelation is kind of telling you a story chronolo- chronologically, but it's not chronological, it's these... It's the same thing happening. So the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, in a sense, you, you see, when you read it, you see kind of a repetition. And they, they sound similar, because like a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament, 
you're being told the same thing from a different perspective. So you're seeing mm-hmm. the same thing from different views. So when you read these things, it's, it's kind of giving you a different take on the on these uh, on these events. Now, you can look at the Book of Revelation and you can think, well, you know, there's debate among scholars, and you're free as a Catholic um, to form your own opinion about whether the Book of Revelation was written early, early meaning before 70 AD, or late, meaning in the 90s. Um, I, for one, most scholars today put a late authorship. They, most of them will put it a late dating of Revelation. Most scholars put, put most of the New Testament late. Um, I tend to hold to an early authorship. Um, when you look at some of the reasonings behind the late authorship, a lot of that comes out of um, historical criticism and uh, this, this movement of modern biblical scholarship that started um, in the 19th, late 19th, early 20th centuries that really sought to kind of strip the scriptures, strip the Bible of some of the spiritualness, some of the, the, the miraculous. And um, because and because of that, then the, when you, you scholars, they look at this and they say, well, you know, they, instead of taking a prophecy as foretelling something in the future, they say it was written after the, after the fact, but it was written to make it sound like it was before it could happen. I, I tend to, to look at Revelation with an early scholar, with an early authorship there, and that's becoming kind of in vogue. It's starting to gain some traction among scholars today that go back and they look at Revelation. And when I say early, I say before 70 AD, because a lot of scholars now are looking at Revelation saying, you know what, it was in its original form, they're looking at it, this is, this is John writing to the churches, and he's writing this, this prophetic vision as a warning to Jerusalem about what's going to happen to the Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans come and the Romans sack Jerusalem and the temple is, de- is de- destroyed. For the Jews, the temple was a microcosm of the world. It was a model of creation. And so when the, the model of creation was destroyed, it was a symbolic destruction of the world. And so when you think about when there's revelation about the end of the world, in a sense, it was about the end. It was about the end of the temple, which was the world for the Jews, right. and it put an end to you know their whole sacrificial system and all of that. Um, and so I, I hold to an early interpretation. So that kind of colors the way I look at things. So when you get into these seals and these trumpets and these stories of things that happen, um, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Um, there's the a white horse. It was representative of, of, of false prophecy. There was a red horse that represented war and unrest. There was a black horse that represented famine. And there was a pale or a sickly colored horse that represented death. And these came out of the first, when the first seals were broken. And when you look at these things and then you go back and you read what it was like in Jerusalem when the Romans were laying siege to the city, you could see the fulfillment of all these things. There were false prophets in the city giving people false hope. Um, there was civil unrest. While the Romans were outside the walls of the city, in the city of Jerusalem, there were two to three different factions of the Jews fighting against each other that were burning each other's food supplies and, and uh, 
capturing and murdering each other. Um, the situation within the city was so desperate that there were accounts um, that we can read of cannibalism, of mothers literally eating their children. Um, it was it was a horrible, horrible situation. And when you look at it and you read these these, these things of the four horsemen, you kind of see this being fulfilled in Jerusalem at the time of of the siege of these things happening. And so I think when you take that kind of that early approach and you look at Revelation primarily being a prophetic warning about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, it was God's judgment on the city for its unfaithfulness. Um, God's judgment on the city for the city turning and killing his son, um, Jesus. That when you look at that and then you start reading some of these things in Revelation, it starts to kind of fill in when you read the historical accounts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it uh, I mean, when you think about the literal sense, I mean, John was writing this for an immediate purpose and to, and exactly. a, to a specific yeah. audience, you know. Um, and like you said earlier, he didn't have, you know, America in mind in 2018. Um and the Antichrist being, you know, the President of the United States or something. Um, they would do a grave injustice to biblical scholarship, to the historical and literal sense of, of the text. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's the only sense, you know. Um, right. So yeah. it, it doesn't render the book kind of like, well, so what? You know, like, what What does that have to do with me now? Why should I bother reading it? Um, yeah. Well, I, and I think, you know, one of the um, one of the resources I was looking at that I mentioned last time talked about how with the, the letters to the churches at the beginning of the book, the, the purpose that, you know, Revelation's being written to these churches these seven churches, they weren't near Jerusalem. They were in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, but in a sense, it was it was a prof- prophetic warning to them as well that, look, this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem because they were unfaithful. You need to be unfaithful. You, you need to be faithful because if you're unfaithful, the same thing will happen to you. Right. The, the blessing will be lifted, that your enemies will crush you because of your unfaithfulness. And if you think about it and you go back and you look at those seven churches, none of them exist to this day. You know, they all fell. Um, they all gave in. They all, they all compromised. And so, you know, as I take that and I read Revelation, well, it's about, man, I need to persevere in my faith. I need to guard against being unfaithful uh, myself so that I can, I can receive the the promise and not fall short of that, you know, that, you know, as a Catholics, you know, it's, it's not a one and done. I say a prayer and that's all I have to worry about for salvation. You know, we understand that salvation is, it's a process. And so here we have like this prophetic warning to us that, you know, the promise is there, but just like the promise was there to Jerusalem before their unfaithfulness, the promise was there to those seven churches. The promise is there to us. Remain faithful and you'll get the prize. But if we 
if we're not faithful, if we if we lose our faithfulness, we lose hope, um, then we won't get to see that that benefit. Right. Um. So once you get into Revelation, you get into um, I think for most people, uh, all of the the good stuff is in chapter twelve. Um, chapters 12 through kind of 17, because it's in there that some of the more famous stuff of Revelation can be found. That's where you have, um, you have the, the, the story of the, the woman clothed with the sun and the dragon waiting to devour her child. That we as Catholics, we see that as, uh, as a typology, as a sign, a symbol, a symbolic language of talking about Mary giving birth to Christ. And, uh, at the same time, the, the church giving birth to her children as well, um, and Satan waiting to, to devour, and, and how St. Michael then comes and defeats the, the devil, he puts him off. And, and then you have the two beasts um, in Revelation. And these two beasts, what's interesting is the first beast comes from the sea, and the second beast comes from the land. And again, I mentioned last time we, we talked that we don't understand a lot of what's going on in Revelation um, because we're not fully tuned in to what's going on with Old Testament prophecies and, and the Old Testament itself. And scripturally speaking, you go back and you read into the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament tends to use the sea as, a, as symbolic for the world, for the Gentile nations. And the land, kind of the promised land, as symbolic of God's people. Right. And so you see these two beasts coming up, and the first beast comes from the sea, so it's like worldly power raising up. The second beast becomes a false prophet, right? And it makes people worship the, the, the second beast makes people worship the first beast, and that and it comes from the sea, so it's kind of like a, a corruption of of religion, a corruption of the faith. Wow. Uh, this idea of false prophets. Right. And so, you know, there's these two temptations that we can we can fall to the corruption of the world, or we can fall to the corruption within religion itself too. We can make we can make our faith an idol if we make if we stop focusing on the person of Jesus. Right. Um, and it's that second beast that's where we get. You know the mark of the beast, six six six, right? And, right. and that uh, uh, everyone's going to have to be have their their the mark of the beast on their hand or their forehead, or they won't be able to uh, buy f- uh, food or things like that. And and that's where you get some kind of crazy conspiracy theories going about you know microchips in the hand and uh, <laughs> and things like that. But I think if we look at that, in one sense we go back again. Well, what was John talking about? Well, all of those seven cities, you know, the main economic drivers in those cities were trades, things like silversmiths and, and carpenters and things like that. And and to have a legitimate business, you had to belong to different guilds, like a, a silversmith guild. And many of those guilds, they were pagan and required, you know, offerings incense to a, uh, an idol for membership. And so, you know, the, here's the choice: do you do you burn a little incense for your financial security 
to that idol or do you not compromise and suffer? And I think even today when we think about it, you know, we I mean, look, in the, look at our culture and, you know, we have people who want to take a stand for their faith. So if someone, for example, wants to, to have a business as a baker or a photographer and they don't want to uh, perform their services at a same-sex marriage, do they... The, the pressures on them, you know, they, they suffer financially because of that. They can be, they can be fined. They can be shut down. You right. know, so I think we constantly have to be aware of where are the points of compromise for us. And when you look at the, the hand and the head, you know, where the mark would be, the hand is the work of our hands, you know, the work that we're doing. The head, you know, where that's our thoughts, our creativity, our you know, uh, our mindset. You know, are we giving right. those things in to the devil? Right. And so instead of maybe worrying about, are they going to put a microchip in my hand? I need to worry about, am I really truly serving God when I'm at work? Am I really truly right. serving God with my thoughts? That's kind of the lesson I think we should take from those things. Um, and so, you know, I, I think with Revelation as a whole, the main the main thrust of revelation, the main message of people, we get, we get distracted by, by the beasts and the numbers and the, all of these things going on around it. But the main thrust of revelation, the main message is Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's in control of history. He's in control of our lives. Nothing happens that he's unaware of. So we can endure suffering for our faith. We can endure tribulation. We can endure um, being persecuted because God sees and knows what's going on, and he's with us in it. And this idea of the rapture we talked about last time, it's so foreign to the way God works. God doesn't pull us out. He didn't pull... When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire, he didn't pull them out. He went into the fire with them. And so that's the message of Revelation, that, that God is in it with us, that he is in control, that nothing's happening that he's not aware of, nothing's happening that, that is taking him by surprise, that I need to trust in the Lord, I need to have that hope that when I have that, that connection, that relationship with God, that now I can rest, now I can be sure that no matter what else is going on around me, if I'm being faithful, that's all that matters. That's all that's being asked of me. That's beautiful, man. And uh, that's that very much speaks to the heart of our podcast as the School of Humanity because that kind of interpretation, it does justice to the humanity of Christ, um, to the reality of the Incarnation, that we have a God who, by becoming man, has ipso facto made human nature and, uh, you know, his very means in preferred language, you know, um, his preferred yeah. dwelling, you know, the, the canonic nature of God, the desire of him to pour himself out into creation for our sake and to be with us. I had this thought over Christmas um, break, uh, I think it was like the last day of 
before Christmas break, I was driving the, the, the girls go to our parish school so that I was taking them to school on my way to work and, and there's some Christmas songs on the radio and I was thinking about the incarnation and I thought, and this past fall I helped, um, I helped out on a junior high retreat that our junior high ministry was doing. And it had been a while since I had done youth ministry and even long a while since I did anything with junior high, middle school. And it struck me like, oh my gosh, this is such an awkward age. I forgot how bad this is. Right. And, and I thought, I even made the comment, like, you could not pay me to go back to middle school. But then I'm driving the, to the girls and, and I'm thinking about Christmas. And I thought, Christ went through puberty. Right. Like God, God loved me so much. He chose to go, he willingly chose to go through puberty. Forget, forget the cross. Right. He dealt with being awkward in his own, in his own right. skin. He dealt with, with, you know, his body changing with, with acne, with being awkward around other kids, with, with the insecurities that go along I wouldn't choose to go do that for just whatever you could offer me, and he chose to do it right, without having to do it, and that's so amazing. Yeah, and, and he didn't just, like, reluctantly or despite, like, he loved every minute of yeah. it, you know? Um, you know, I mean, that's just it. I mean, the Gospels tell us, this, apart from the infancy narratives, the Gospels, for the most part, give us a picture of the last three years of Jesus. And he, he was 30, 33 years old. So, so for, for 30 years, before Jesus' public ministry, he for 30 years, he just enjoyed being human. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. lived in the, the obscurity of a small village, being a carpenter, and just enjoyed life. And that just blows me away when I think about it. Yeah, it speaks to the innate goodness of of the human person, you know, to our dignity. Um, and yep. that, and that's partly too what I was thinking earlier when I lost my train of thought was, you know, if you if you miss the fact that by nature human beings are innately good because we were created by God, who is goodness per se. Um, then you give too much credence to this notion of an antichrist, especially when that antichrist is labeled as some individual in history. Because, um, I mean, even when people sin, like we've said many times on this podcast, it, they're doing it because of some perceived good. You know, you know, evil is not something, but it's a deprivation of the good, and. And when and like St. Paul says, our 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 you know, a battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against, you know, the principalities and powers and, you know, uh mm-hmm. the spirits. Um and and so John is warning these various churches about vices and about things choosing things other than God, which is against their human, their humanity. Even Christ, or even the devil himself, is spoken of as you know um, the uh, what do they call him? The um, 
or that was Saint Ignatius, wasn't it? The the um, the enemy of the human enemy nature. of human nature, right? So um, it's kind of a beautiful thing to think of. So when we start getting all off on these tangents on trying to interpret Revelation with you know specific historical things in modern times, or you know predicting that some person is going to become like a demon, it's just very uh, poor theology. Um, I, mean, I think I think there's also a temptation among among all of us, you know, to want to over, almost overthink um, God's will for us. You know, like we, we want, uh-huh. we want to attach the will of God to some, some sort of symbolic meaning. And it's like, I'm in an escape room and he's given me all these clues to try to get out of here. Um, right. When in all actuality, he's just there. Yeah, but that that in some way is some kind of subtle denial of the incarnation. It is. It is because we cannot grasp an infinite love that nothing that I do adds or takes away from it. That just by me being, just by my existence, he is proclaiming how much he adores me. Right. You know, that is just too hard for us to understand, you know, and I think that we, we constantly try to create... Um, really lofty um, uh, stories or, you know, they, you look at things and you're like, wow, it's really a fairy tale. But the truth is, is that we've just always been living in this once right. upon a time. You right. know, we've always been living in the, they lived happily ever after. Right. We just never want to look at it like that. Right. We always want it to be, um, we always think there must be an adventure to get to this happy ending. But in all actuality, the happy ending is the beginning of our adventure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we 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 get caught up on thinking that God's will for me is something that I do rather than becoming who I am. Right. Right. And it's got to be out of the context of of the immediate reality that's been given to me because. Clearly, this is kind of a boring, I mean, God, you know, he's not really here, I mean, because this is kind of a, a mundane existence, you know, he must, he must be out there somewhere where I need to be, you know, uh, and Reve- Revelation is an opportunity for me to embellish that false notion, because there's all these elaborate figures and, and events and stuff, and uh, that's just the absolute wrong way to go about seeking holiness or interpreting uh, uh, sacred scripture. Amen. Yeah. Uh, I think well, we're out of time again. We, we are, darn it. <laughs> Every time. Every time. Um. Tom, we can't thank you enough. That was so oh, well done. Oh, no that was great. Yeah, yeah, we love this. So so you need to, whatever your next study is, let's just keep us in the loop and let's let's do a couple more podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is fantastic. So, and I'm sure that people love hearing a different voice than ours, and also the fact that 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 voice has so much wisdom. So, thank you so much, and and we hope that for our listeners, um, if you have any anything that you'd like to to hear more about or hear more about this talk, um, please shoot us an email, and we'll get you in touch with Tom. Or I'm sure you could go to his parish website there and stalk him if you want. Um, <laughs> So our lady, our lady of Mount Carmel in uh, Carmel, Indiana. 
And um, yes. our email, in case you're wondering, is, is schoolofhumanityfl for Florida at gmail.com. Schoolofhumanityfl at gmail.com. And we hope that you will continue to dive into sacred scripture. And even more than that, that you will you will believe that, that God loves you. Absolutely. You know? Amen. So God bless you. God bless you.